0: Coming back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support coming back on Patreon at patreon.com slash My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to the podcast host of You, Me, Empathy, Known Wells, about growing up in a violent home, and the anxiety, depression, and anorexia that almost stopped his heart. Also this week, I'm talking about the agony of comparing grief and pain, and sharing the grief recovery method's helpful statement, that grief is a measure of time and intensity. I'm Shelby Frasithia, an intuitive grief guide and coach who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Before we jump in, just a quick reminder that our next live grief support hangout is coming up a little less than a month from now on June 24th at 8 p.m. Central Time. These calls are your opportunity to ask me anything, as well as dive deeper on grief, loss, and all of the conversations we've had here on Coming Back. I love how each and every month our group chats grow organically, and I usually end up coming away with at least one or two grief book recommendations and a podcast or a YouTube video to watch later. It's just really neat to share resources and stories and kind of um, commiserate and celebrate with all of you who are listening to the show. If you'd like to join this live grief support call with me and other listeners of Coming Back, all you have to do is pledge to support Coming Back at any level at patreon.com slash Scythia. Once you pledge to support the show, you'll instantly unlock the link to join us live, as well as all of my other private posts and material. And you can click that link to meet us in the chat room on June twenty-fourth. No fancy software required. I would love to see you there, grief growers. You can find the link to join us, which is patreon.com slash Shelby for Scythia in the show notes for this episode. So for the top of the show this week, I want to talk about how we often fall into this pitfall of measuring or comparing grief. And this is a really sticky subject. Last week, I posted on my Instagram about how gross it feels to compare griefs, like when one person tries to stack up their loss against ours to see who's hurting worse. And that got me thinking about how we're measuring or quantifying grief in our brains, and maybe that we shouldn't. How do we have any grounds to stand on when comparing something as personal and as intimate as a loss? Now, I want to make it very clear here that I do not support comparing griefs. I think it's a really like gross and icky thing to do, and it doesn't feel good to anyone involved. If you quote-unquote win a grief comparison argument, you're presumably the one who's in more pain, which sucks. And if you quote-unquote lose in grief comparison, you're probably in as much or more pain than the person who quote-unquote won But you have the additional pain of having your grief invalidated by comparing it to someone else's. And that sucks too. No one is a winner. No one feels good when comparing griefs comes into play. The modality that I was trained in the grief recovery method teaches that the grief that we feel is made up of a combination of time plus intensity. But let me be clear here again and say that the grief recovery method is not measuring grief so that we can go out and stack up our losses against other people's. It's so that we can affirm and validate the pain of our grief for ourselves. The grief recovery method reminds us with this visual of time plus intensity, that we can grieve just as much for a person we've known our whole lives as we can for someone we've only known for a little while. In my own world, this is why my grief over losing my mom, who I knew and loved for the entire 21 years of my life, ranked about as high as my grief over losing my former fiance, a woman who I had only met and known for eight months, but who I had a very, very, very intense emotional relationship with. I think what the grief recovery method highlights here is that time is important, the amount of time that we spend with somebody, but also the level of in which our heart is invested. Relationships are really wonky things in that we can experience a lot of life with someone over a long period of time. So like a parent, a child, a longtime best friend... We can also experience a lot of life with someone over a very short period of time. So like a romantic partner, a boss or a mentor, or what I like to call a seasonal friend who supports you and interacts with you at a really intense level during a hard or a difficult season of life. And what kind of sucks, and the reason I think that grief comparison exists at all, is that society likes to use time as a measurement a lot there's an implication that family or childhood friends of someone who died must have more of a right to grieve someone who's died than others who have not known the deceased for as long. And that's garbage. Time does not measure for intensity. It just measures for time. The time that you knew someone is a valid reason to grieve. They were in your life for a period of time, and now they're not. And that's very hard to adjust to. Grief is defined as the end of or change in what your life was defined as normal. So anything that was considered normal is now over and that is worth grieving. So if this person was a part of your life for a long time, that's worth grieving. But what society often fails to measure for, or almost kind of discriminates against, is intensity, the depth of the relationship you had with someone, the amount of life that you experienced with them in the time that you had. So things like Were there a lot of emotional ups and downs? Did they see you through a job transition or the death of a loved one or a major period of transition in your life? Were there these big declarations of love or feelings that you've met this friend or partner before and are picking up where you left off in a past life, like we meet these people we're just instantly connected to? Did you share like really deep things like secrets or personal information together? Or was your relationship intimate at a level you did not share with anyone else? That can be defined as intensity. The newlywed spouse of a man who dies has just as much a right to grieve him as his mother. The best friend of a terminal cancer patient has just as much a right to grieve her as her daughter. The across the cubicle co worker of a much loved public figure has just as much a right to grieve him as his brother. If you're feeling insecure in this idea of, am I allowed to be grieving this much? Do I have a right to be in this much pain? How come other people are stacking up their loss to mine and trying to tell me that I should be grieving less, or more? Remember, if you're wrestling with this, that grief is a combination of time and intensity. The amount of time you knew someone is just one aspect of your grief for them. The other is intensity, this depth and breadth of what you shared together, the stuff that literally creates these intimate human relationships. One of my favorite examples of grief comparison, if I can have a favorite example of grief comparison is of this woman who attended one of my very first grief gatherings in Chicago. She was coming up against this pitfall of comparing griefs, but in a really, really sinister way in that she was comparing her griefs to each other. So she wasn't comparing and contrasting her grief with another person's grief. It was literally she was lining up all of her griefs and comparing them to each other. And she was really struggling What was happening in this moment was that her parents were getting older and dealing with mental and physical health issues, and they were turning to her to care for them in their final years. They knew they were approaching death. And she was carrying this grief, this anticipatory grief for them as they came closer and closer to their respective deaths. But she wasn't grieving hard. And that really confused her. She was like, these are my parents. Shouldn't I be more upset that I'm in the process of losing them? But when she laid out her relationship with her parents, she told this story of being related to them and knowing them for a long time, but never really being attached. There was a lot of toxicity in their interactions together. So she set boundaries as early as she could. And she left home. She lived far away. She had known her parents for a long time, her whole life. But the intensity of her connection to them was not very strong. We shifted to another conversation and she started to cry. When I asked her a few more questions, she said, every time I cry about someone dying, I'm crying for the same reason. My biggest grief so far has been my cat. This orange cat that I had for 10 years and was with me through moving and boyfriends and breakups and job hunting in a new city. Thinking about his death shreds me to pieces inside. So she didn't know her cat for a long time, but the intensity of an intimate and personal relationship of this unconditional love was most definitely there. I know some of you listening have this in your own lives, grief growers, where you're grieving for someone you didn't know for very long in a really intense way, and then someone who's been with you your whole life maybe doesn't get as much of your grief. Like maybe it's just not dispersed that way. And what society would believe is backwards or nonsensical I believe, and the grief recovery method believes and teaches, is perfectly normal grief. Of course you can grieve for a cat more than you can your parents. Of course you can grieve the death of a miscarried child more than your coworker who you've been working with for 19 years. Of course you can grieve the dream of a life you wanted to live or were supposed to have more than a person who is a physical part of your life. This quote-unquote measurement of grief. Time plus intensity. How long have you been in a relationship with a person, animal, place, or dream? That's time. But what is your connection to this person, animal, place, or dream? That's intensity. Both time and intensity are measures of the depth of our pain and grief, and they're reminders to us that longevity and proximity and blood ties are not the only valid reasons for grieving, as much as society likes to hammer that into our heads. We know, as grievers, and our hearts know too, who and what we're truly connected to and bonded with in terms of intensity, and there is grief there too. In summary, at the top of the show today, don't compare griefs, guys. But if you find yourself falling into this comparison trap, whether you're arguing with yourself in your own mind, or sitting across from a human person who's trying to stack up losses with you, remember that grief is measured by time and intensity, by the length and the depth. And while we can know pretty close how much time we've been in a relationship with something we've lost, it's not always easy to determine intensity. Give yourself grace and the people around you, Grace, as you're grieving. And remember that everyone's perspective on time and intensity will be personal and unique to them. Everyone's grief is different. The grief recovery method likes to say that all grief is felt at 100% for each person. And that 100% is made up of time and intensity. If this rings true for you, I would love if you shared your story with us about grief comparison in my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden. I'll be posting about time and intensity later this week. Up next, I'm talking to Noan Wells, the host of You, Me, Empathy, about harnessing empathy and vulnerability in dealing with anxiety, depression, and anorexia. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruises organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Nolan Wells is a mental health advocate. Writer, doggo lover, runner, empath, and feely human. He has depression, anxiety, and is in recovery from anorexia nervosa, but these are just components of him, not all of him. Known as the creator of the podcast and community, You, Me, Empathy, a safe space for others to share their mental health stories. He believes deeply in the power of vulnerability and empathy as integral foundational elements to recovery and mental health awareness. Known writes about mental health, his eating disorder journey, and other feely things at knownwells.com. Known, I am absolutely thrilled that a listener of Coming Back has connected the two of us in the podcast sphere as grief slash empathy slash loss slash heart centered podcasters. And I'm just so excited to have you here uh, with your story in the show as well. So if you could please start us off with your loss story. What brings you here today?
1: Sure. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. Um, My loss story is one about losing a past self, essentially. I grew up in an environment where I felt fear a lot. I was scared a lot. I was emotionally guarded. I um I had a father who was violent and he terrified me and I learned to basically uh, guard my heart in in a way that was a survival tool. It was a sort of survival mechanism, Uh, but into sort of my teenage years and, and young adulthood became a, uh, something that, that was troubling, something that, um, limited me and, and, and didn't allow me to do the work that I, uh, eventually was able to do. You know, now I'm 37 years old and had a long time to work on that, but, um, that, that self being a sort of sensitive, scared little boy, um, uh, even though that that was challenging and, and difficult and, um i look back on that little boy and i i kind of i want to hug him you know um it was it was like i almost look back on him and i i want to i want to redo in in a sense and but i've i've sort of losing that part of myself i've had to i've had to move on because uh it led to essentially um you know i was undiagnosed depressed anxiety it led to uh anorexia and uh you know i almost died and that was sort of like a a big wake up call for me and, and a big turning point in my own mental health journey in seeing that um okay this this guard you have around your heart is uh not serving you and um i've had to um really create my own life again i've really had to establish an entirely new identity uh um, by you know, first leading with my heart and opening that heart and not having it so so guarded. Um, so that's that's kind of the 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 general of my of my lost story.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And the first thing that I'm really curious about is, was this realization of I am guarded, this is essentially killing me? I need to open up my heart, was that like a lightning bolt for you where things kind of turned around and changed overnight? Or was it more of a gradual process of like, for lack of better phrasing, reintroducing your heart to the world again?
1: That's a great question. I, it, it was definitely a gradual process because I had the added sort of wrinkle of uh, being 118 pounds anorexic and uh, the doctor essentially telling me my heart would, would stop my heart would literally stop if I uh, continued in that manner. And so um, like the, the physical ramifications, there's like a physical element there, then obviously the emotional side, but um, it was certainly a gradual process. I, I needed to, I realized I needed to uh, open my heart and allow the the, the, the stuff that was just all under the surface, the stuff that I had learned to kind of stuff down and, and, and hide from my father and hide from my mother even, hide the cutting that I did, hide all these things that I did as a kid because I was, I was scared and terrified and deeply sensitive, uh, those things I couldn't do anymore because I, I felt like if I did them, I would I would literally die. And so it was a, it was, and has been, I mean, it, it's a life journey, but it, it took a good probably 10, 10, 15 years. Um, I'm still working through it, honestly, in therapy and, and other, other uh, modalities. And I'm still working through it.
0: I just want to take a second to validate this story for you and for grievers who are listening as well, that fear and anxiety and stress and just being under this constant pressure can manifest in the body. I think there are so many, uh, unfortunately, so many grief professionals, but even just so many people that we're surrounded by, whether they're coworkers or people we see at religious institutions or even people we see on the train that have this sharp, sharp disconnect between what we're thinking and feeling in our minds and our hearts and what's expressed in us physically. But I literally think it's possible to wear fear or to have our bodies be made of fear.
1: Oh, 100%. Um, uh, if you've ever read the book, the body keeps the score, um, which is mind blowing. It's, it, it tells us, you know, the story of like how we hold these traumas in our bodies, our physical bodies, um, and it's uh it's it's really it's a book I recommend highly if you haven't read it.
0: I love it. And I actually that was definitely on my to read list because you're not the first person that's come on the podcast and recommended that one. And I'm like, I gotta get to it one you of these do, days. You do, you do. Um it's it's incredibly powerful. And I experienced that in my own story as listeners will know I suffered from massive adrenal burnout after my mom died. And um I don't know that I was in a situation where I almost died, but I regularly felt like I was dying. And that's almost, uh, I don't think my brain could tell the difference. And that was really hard. Um, and so I think our our bodies really, yeah, they keep the score of like what's going on. And even as different times of year roll around, we feel our griefs or the, our milestones over and over and over again.
1: So one of the things that I am processing actually uh, currently um, uh, recent occurrence, uh, and it's, it's very related to this. So I don't have a relationship with my father and, um, I do have a relationship with my mother. However, recently, and I won't get into the, the full details, but recently she's essentially, I think she's holding on to my previous self. She, in her mind, I was a very happy child um i was a um someone you know who was happy go lucky and sensitive and 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 i think uh there there is some truth there, but it's come to a, a place where that 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 part of me that self um i i can't be anymore and she is essentially looking at myself now who is who is you know, leading with my heart, who is finding all this beauty in, in sort of emotional wayfinding and empathy and these things I, I, I hold dear. Uh, she's finding those to be, um, negative negativity, um, and, and, um, uh, and, and vile, uh, and, and she doesn't understand them, you know, and she, she went so far as, um, basically telling me to prove to her that I cut myself and I had to show her my scars. And she looked at those scars and she says, I don't see them. So there's something going on there and I won't get into all that. There's a lot to unpack there, but I do, I bring that up only because I think that she is still holding on to the self I was. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that with, uh, parents. I think they, they get this idea and the sense that their children, uh, don't change uh, and don't grow and don't um, transform in ways. And I, I think um, the thing that I, I've learned is that we need to meet people where they are and accept them and see them. And there's so much like beauty and growth and learning in that. And when you don't have that and you're invalidated, it's so, it's difficult, you know?
0: I'm sitting here like I literally have my hand over my chest right now because this, <laughs> this image of, of proof of like showing evidence of like, here it is. And that in itself being a heartbearing mom, because sharing the scars, physical, actual scars, even beyond heart scars is like a holy shit uh, heartbearing reality. Um, so to be there and be showing scars and for her still to say, I don't see them is, it's like, um, it's like an, ultimate shutdown or an ultimate invalidation or I am making an active decision to not join you in how you're going on this next journey. Like I'm not joining you on this next journey and it's really, um, insistent. And you say, yeah, absolutely. This applies to parents. And I actually, um, I was requested to give a quote for an article uh, earlier this morning about, uh, The parents of unplanned children, so children Mm -hmm. who are, you know, maybe the pregnancy was an accident, but they decide to keep the children anyway, Um, and the feelings of negativity and resentment that come up. And the thing that I featured was what most parents deal with. I mean, even parents that have planned children is the death of hopes, dreams, and expectations, Mm that they have for their kids, whether their kids are going to be these people always, or they're going to have this job always, or they're never going to get tattoos always, like however big, small, trivial, outward, inward, career choice, money, partners, whatever it is, um, there's something in parents that needs to grieve when their children change and become different people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like... uh, Yes, they're almost their own, their own subset of people that insists that their kids never change. Um, and and that's very hard. And I've seen this in grief too, with, with people in friend groups or, um, children looking at their parents thinking, I never thought you'd become this. Uh, and, and it's wild that that happens. Like, it feels like we've already lost so much. Right. Yeah.
1: What's, what's. So um, troubling for someone like me who has, for the first time in my life, like doing my podcast and and really uh, engaging wholeheartedly in the community of uh, advocacy for vulnerability and empathy and and and, and I feel and I am validated in such um, that I am I am helping people in that and and to to have someone say that that work is uh, negativity. It, uh, like I can't even, I'm still wrapping my head around it. And I, I think to your point, I think there is a, gr- a grieving on my mom's part and there's probably some guilt, uh, and, and sort of, um, her, uh, inability to protect me as a kid and things like that. But like, yeah, I'm still, I'm, it's still very new and fresh and I'm still processing it. But like on that level, it's just, it's kind of bonkers. It's mind blowing.
0: I want to know if there were any other instances in like the 10 to 15 years that you've been coming back or creating this new person, uh, this new identity for yourself. I wonder if there are any moments that you would consider like revelations, like what have you learned that maybe has totally changed your perspective on how you're allowed to show up in the world or the type of person that you really want to be? I mean, anything that really has sparked maybe some leaps and bounds for you.
1: Mm. Yeah. You know, I, there's a few moments I I would say certainly a moment um, of clarity was the doctor in Swansea, Wales telling me my heart would stop. That was a, that was a, a big one. I think, um, you know, so my listeners know that I spent uh, about six months studying abroad in my uh, uh, Sophomore year at college in Swansea, Wales, and I—it I, uh, was—it <laughs> was at the height of my uh, anorexia. And during that time, I remember um, very fondly my my dear late grandfather sending me um, just the silliest, goofiest postcards. He would send me like one a week, <laughs> and um, I remember finding. Um, Reminding myself and, and, and I've done a lot of thinking about this in retrospect, but like reminding myself that levity is such a huge part of um, the totality of our mental health. Like levity for me today is such an important part of um, reminding myself to not take life too seriously, reminding myself that um, I can't control everything, reminding myself that, that laughing can be such a healing uh, activity. Um, you know, that's a huge one. I think another one that really sticks out is I um, I played soccer for many years and I, I went back, you know, this was, I was still in sort of new recovery from my anorexia. And I went back to uh, like an alumni game at my high school. And I remember my old coach telling me to uh, go eat a sandwich. And that has stuck with me as a, um, as a point of, um, like, I don't think he was trying to be cruel. I think what I took away from that was, okay, we need to, we need to learn and we need to educate people on how to interact with people who are are processing trauma and dealing with mental illness and, 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 and other things. And, um, and so like that was, a, that was a huge point in sort of kicking off this own journey for me. Another last one I'll say is I have a dear younger brother who uh, has schizophrenia and that has been a uh, really at times grueling at times beautiful sort of learning process for me to learn how to show up for him uh, to create the right boundaries for myself to uh, recognize that I can't Sort of control what he is. I have had to learn how to also um, validate his reality, which is different from my own. and uh, so those are those are a few that that really kind of stick out for me.
0: Thank you for sharing all three of those. and those are just like totally separate but interconnected, magnificent examples of these are the things that really they you know, like when you're at the eye doctor and you get new lenses flipped over and he's like one or two, two or three. It's like you just get new lenses flipped over the way that you're viewing the world. Um, And I love this, especially about your brother that you said, I can't control how he sees his reality. I can't control how he operates in the world. Um, And that harkens back to a previous episode of Coming Back where I interviewed the author, Kiri Egan, who, while she was delivering her son, uh, they gave her ketamine instead of another anesthesia. And she actually suffered a psychotic break for about six months as a result of it. And so she had high levels of like hallucinations and psychosis and all this other stuff and was living in a reality that no one else around her was. And from then on, as a hospice chaplain, she's like nothing that anyone ever tells me I'm going to think is crazy ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, because she's like, I have lived in my own separate world and come back to quote unquote reality or normal life in a different way. But she's like, I'm never going to invalidate anybody else's experience again. Cause God knows what, what they're going through. Um, and it's, it's just really fascinating to hear you be able to put that lens, not only over your own experience and maybe your experience with your mom, but with your brother as well. So to be able to branch this out and extend it beyond yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have to, right. Cause it's, uh, so much grief and so much heartache comes from trying to control what we can't control as humans. You know, there's so much, um, gnashing of teeth in that process that is just so crazy making. And it's, 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 it ultimately leads to, uh, resentment or heartache or what have you. And it's, uh, it's just not a, it's not a thing we're going to win. We need to kind of, um, give, you know, I, I, I always say this. Uh, I had a guest on my podcast, my friend Katie Hilliard, and she always says, we have to give people the dignity of their own experiences.
0: Ooh, right? Isn't that beautiful? Can you say that again? Because that's wonderful.
1: Yeah. We have to give people the dignity of their own experiences. Wow. Right? It's just beautiful. And it, 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 I always kind of come back to that because it's, it's such a beautiful representation of how we as humans um, are uniquely uh, positioned in this world. We're we're all different. We we have our own stories, and they're all valid. And we need to meet people where they are, exactly where they are. So,
0: I'm wondering, um, because this happens a lot in grief. It happens a lot in daily life too, where we're interacting with people whose whose stories or boundaries or realities or experiences are different than our own. And there's a lot of frustration in trying to get them to see what we see and perhaps vice versa. I wonder if you have any tools or maybe phrases or mental tricks that you use to kind of shift that when you're in those situations. Hmm.
1: That is a good one. Um, And essential, (laughs) you know, gosh, I think, for me, what helps is just um, like i i I talk to a lot of people about their own sort of mental health struggles, and you know i I think a huge part of that is really um letting go of our ego. I think we want to um there's so much we've all experienced this where we were listening to someone and we are waiting for the opportunity to insert ourselves or waiting for them to finish. So we can just say whatever we were going to say, regardless of what they're saying. And I think I've learned um, and, and, and learning every day that listening and actually listening and, and forgetting about everything you're bringing to it, just, just shed all of the artifice, shed all that bullshit and, and really listen to people like that is it's hard to do it's like a it's a it's a practice, but if we can do that for each other it like i i feel there's so much beauty in that, and it's really like amount about like really truly connecting with that person and listening to them and like actually engaging with them on a level that's that's you know that's that's real you know that 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 stuff is the real stuff that stuff is the stuff I want in in life, in every conversation and interaction I have.
0: I think that's perfect. I think it's, I think it's actively listening without, I mean, the grief recovery method, which is the program that I studied in would call it being a big heart with ears. Like just Mm. some people call it holding space, holding presence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I'm immediately recalling a study from uh one of the founders of the bereavement cruise sent it my way after the cruise concluded and there it was an article that said people who have been actively listened to have the same like brainwave patterns going on as when they're with the most loved person in the world. Like as as if they're with a partner or with a loved one that's mm. really listening to them. Uh and it's tremendously powerful this feeling of like if I'm being listened to, that equals love, like in the human brain and in the human body. Uh, And just, because we know instinctively when that presence is and isn't being held for us. We know when people are distracted or we know when people, we can almost see the words forming behind their lips and they're like, they're just waiting for me to get done talking.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's really just about seeing people and accepting them. And, um, you know, so much in life is, is, is really not actually seeing people, and I, I, I uh, my hope is that we create those spaces for people. We create the safety of of um, listening and and really meeting people, and, and 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 that sort of is like a ripple effect, and and people kind of like see the beauty in that, and, and and they share it with others, and and so on and so forth. That's that's my hope, at least.
0: I think I want to segue now. I think that's just the perfect transition into what I want to go into next, which is your podcast uh, called You, Me, Empathy. And the first question that I have is uh, related to you, actually, as a host, because from my own personal experience, both in the grief sphere and the larger self-help sphere and the health sphere, especially in podcast world, so much of it is dominated by women. And so Mm -hmm. this language of wholehearted and empathy and heart space and vulnerability is all coming from the mouths of female identified people. And so I'm wondering, as someone who is male identified, what it's like to, because I picture you as kind of like a banner carrier in this instance (laughs) of like, I'm taking this up and running with it because we all, I mean, it, it crosses gendered lines, of course. And I don't know what kind of place the world would be. I think it'd be awesome if we could relay the importance of empathy and living with your heart open to men. Um, And so I'm just wondering, like, what was your driving motivator for starting the podcast? And then what is it like being male in this space?
1: Two great questions. Um, uh, The driving motivator for starting Yumi Empathy was to create safe spaces uh, that I did not have. Uh, as a, As a kid and growing up or or felt like I did not have, and really truly as as we discussed, meeting people where they are and listening to them and giving them the opportunity to tell their stories because they are true and real and one of the things that i've i uh i I talk about a lot is the importance of recognizing that the emotional experiences of a unique person is real to them. So, as an example, um, i have I've told this story on my podcast, but when I was nine or ten years old, I was with my brother and we were playing with this uh, stray kitten in the house. We found the stray kitten outside. we brought the kitten inside we were playing with it we you know we love animals, so we were playing with this little kitten. My dad comes downstairs, yells at us, "Hey, I'm allergic, get this cat out of here." So we do, uh, and of course, we are I'm nine, ten years old, my brother's You know seven uh we brought the kitten the kitten back in and a couple of minutes later my dad yells storms toward the cat grabs the the kitten by the scruff of its neck uh marches upstairs uh meanwhile i'm kind of crying and and saying stop 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 kind of following him uh marches out onto our deck which is second floor and basically does a football throw of the cat, hundred yards into the air, and I I um I remember bringing that that story and that emotional experience to my mother, and uh, this was a year ago or so, and she's like, oh, that didn't happen, um and and uh, you know my sister said it did, you know of course, but like the point is like we each have even if like the details. Of that aren't exactly how I just spoke about them the emotional reality of that experience is 100% real and valid and true to my experience so I created you empathy because I want to give people um, that space to recognize that their emotional experiences are true and valid and beautiful and I want them to feel less alone and to allow for healing and connecting and growth and um, as far as being a man, um, I, you know, growing up with a father who was very arrogant and, and very uh, narcissistic and tyrannical and, and um, I just, I did not like him one, one iota. That's sort of, I, I think I'm, I'm biased toward um, appreciating women more. But I, I think if I'm being perfectly honest with the question, I would say I don't really think about it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think certainly there's a lot of work to do for men. Like men need to open their hearts and and, and, and shed the, 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 the artifice that we need to be kings and we need to be strong and all this bullshit that means nothing. Um, and I think a lot of men get caught up in that. But I... I so I don't really think about the gender. I really just want to be, um, I call myself a feely human. I, I, I want, like, I, that's who we all are. We all have the capacity for vulnerability and looking inward. Um, maybe some people are more sort of progressed on that journey, but I think we all have that in us. So I don't really think about the, the gender side of things, really.
0: I think that's a perfect response because it kind of speaks to that idea too of like, just show up. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I literally wrote down a question. I'm not sure where it's coming from, uh, but so much of your, your former self, this identity that you lost this, the boy that you'd like to hug that you used to be uh, was so based in and rooted in fear. And I want to know, this can sound like a flippant question, or it can also sound like a really deep question, but is there anything that you're afraid of now
1: um I don't think that's a flippant question by the way um, <laughs> anything that I'm afraid of that that is a that i think that's a tremendous insight honestly um because i I don't think there really is i don't I don't fear much I don't fear death, I don't fear dying I don't fear you know wild animals you know murdering my face whatever it may be i i just i i think i've come to a place in my life again i'm i'll be 38 this year um i've i've just i don't have the emotional energy to 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 really think about that stuff like i i really am embroiled in Empathy and vulnerability—that's like my jam, <laughs> um, marmalade jam. And it's just, I, yeah. So I don't. Let me backtrack for a second. So, <laughs> growing up with my parents, um, the things that I've learned through therapy is that I, I, I think there's narcissism of both sides of my parents, and I, I think I've. I still sometimes have a hard time with the concept of um, being loved and and like I deserve any love. So I will find myself in moments where I mean, I'm experiencing some joy. It's perceived as joy by my friends. And then I halfway through, I shut down because, oh, no, I'm experiencing joy. I don't deserve this. And that's that's a thing that I struggle with. It's and maybe there's a little sort of fear that 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 will sort of um steal me from more sort of joyful experiences but honestly i'm i'm becoming more and more mindful of it and aware of it and and getting better at sort of processing it but to your question i don't i don't fear much and that may be a sort of blind silliness but <laughs> honestly i don't care like i I I think this planet is beautiful and lovely, and and also chaos in a way. And I, I kind of give in to the chaos.
0: I think massive, massive personal overhaul, and also living in in dysfunction, not being in tune with our bodies for so long, and then coming back to that, it's like, well, there's. I tell people all the time. I'm like, I feel like I kind of seen the worst thing that there is in the death of my mother. And so like new stuff, like even the death of my dad or the death of my sister, or like the death of people that I'm really close to, I'm like, nothing will ever be that dark,
1: mm, like yeah.
0: ever again, like that scale and level of darkness, because it was the first time it happened. I was so young. I didn't have any coping to it. Like there were all these things like heaped on, like you will never get that first experience of it being so, 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 so dark ever again. And so for me, and this, you know, grief growers listening to the show, this may or may not apply to your personal experience, but like, I fear very little as a result of that. Like, I, I don't know, there's things that like stress me out, but, and there's things that I'm working on for myself, obviously, because I don't, a fearless human is not a perfect human by any means. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it it's totally changed. Like what I do with fear, or what I use fear for. Like now, I know that even can, I, I can use it. it. It's not the ruler, yeah. um, which is which is really cool. It's a it's a neat and bizarre place to be, because I think so much of the rest of the world does operate with fear in the driver's seat.
1: Hmm. I, I, that's a beautiful insight. Like I, I you hear about that where you know someone, you know I haven't had any, uh, you know sort of real deeply personal, uh, deaths, uh, in my life. But, you know, to hear you talking about, you know, your, your, your dad and that experience, you hear these, you know, people who go through those traumas come to that. They said, Oh yeah, I've, I've been that like, what else can be as dark? Like that makes total sense to me. And I think a part of it is like a resilience, recognizing that, like, look, I've been through that. I can I can take care of anything. Or, <laughs> you know, I always think like, if, you know, I've ha- I'm having a sort of depressive mode, like what helps me sometimes it's not always helpful, but what helps me sometimes is taught, you know, the self-talk of like, I've been here before I got through it that time. I will get through it this time. You know, that, that sort of self-talk.
0: Can you share some more, uh, ways that you talk to yourself?
1: Sure, you probably want some more sort of helpful, unless like me sort of. <laughs> silly,
0: I mean, we could be off. like, "Damn it, I can't open the pickle jar," but we can. Go, <laughs> we can go in all kinds of directions.
1: Um, yeah, let's see. Um, you know, definitely a, a you uh, definitely a consistent one is you do deserve love. Definitely consistent one is you do deserve joyful experiences. Um, another one is yeah, you're resilient. Another one is. Um, you matter, you know, you are making a difference. I, I think, and, and maybe you can relate to this, but I, I, I get a little bit of imposter syndrome at times doing You Me Empathy and running this show. You know, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I'm just a silly feely human who likes to lead with his heart and, and likes to dance with his doggy. You know, so I, I, I'm fully aware of that, but I, I get, but I, so I, I get, I get in my head too much and say like, oh, what am I doing this? Why, why, why am I even doing this? Like, why should people listen to me? Mm -hmm. But what helps me is, is obviously I'm validated by the beautiful community in Yumi Empathy, but, but also just reminding myself that like, look, you are doing good work and it matters and it matters to people. And these, you know, messages you're receiving via DMs or email or whatever, this is proof and look at that and don't, you know, stop telling yourself that you don't matter. And why should people listen to you? You know, that's not, that's not, that's not very helpful.
0: Yeah. I'm always convinced you're right that I do have this experience of, uh, like I need letters behind my name, or some kind of PhD, or I mean, I need to go back to school for this or something. Because like, I've gotten certifications for things, but my biggest experience in this is like, oh wow, someone in my life has also died. So like, I, I, that's my qualifier.
1: <laughs> and that's a um, that's a valid and and that's a valid qualifier. Like that is that's life experience.
0: Yeah, to speak to that, and it's like, do I want to keep chasing more? achievements or am i going to look at what i've already achieved or am achieving Mm. it's a it's like a subtle shift in perspective it's like where are we going with our with our eyeballs and with our brains i absolutely love it i want to let our listeners know where they can find you as well as you me empathy as well as any other work that you would like to share with us
1: sure you know i i do want to um re-mention the the body keeps the score for the listeners. So definitely listen to that. Um, is this a section where we're talking about resources?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Share anything that you like. That's been helpful. Okay. So where to find you?
1: Yeah. 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 So the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk, um, a little panic, which is a book by Amanda Stern about growing up with a undiagnosed panic disorder and just anxiety it's if you experience anxiety it's 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 a memoir that's hilarious but also very life affirming um i just finished actually Nora McInerney's book No Happy Endings
0: oh don't spoil it i'm so excited to read it
1: <laughs> i won't spoil it but it's it's hilarious and heartbreaking but it it it's very much you know about grief it very much is about grief so i think your listeners would uh find a lot of value in it um you know, another uh, man in the space that has been a guest on You Empathy and has a podcast, Mental Illness Happy Hour. Paul Gilmartin is fantastic, uh, a really kind of beautiful soul. And I, I highly recommend his podcast, Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, yeah, as for me, um, you can find You Empathy at uh and subscribe in Apple and Google and Stitcher and Spotify and all those Places. My website is knownwells.com, nonwel com n um, o n w e l s Yeah, on Instagram at Umi Empathy and Twitter at Umi Empathy, and uh, yeah, I think that's about it.
0: That's so perfect. And that's like a little compact nugget roundup there at the end of all resources grief growers can find. Uh, and I will actually include links to those in the show notes as well, because there's some books in there, there's another podcast in there. And then of course, there's None's podcast and website and social media handles as well. So I'll include all that at the very end. Uh, None, I am so just delighted that I've gotten to share space with you today. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your heart and all of its tools and stories with us today.
1: Oh, Shelby, it's it's my, it's my honor. And, and thank you so much for having me.
0: So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Known Wells, a fellow feely podcaster, for coming on to talk about how he's harnessing vulnerability and empathy to embrace others and himself known came back by reading the body keeps the score reminding himself that he's been here before and by giving people the dignity of their own experiences you can find a link to known's website where you can find his podcast you me empathy in the show notes To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support from me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Our next live hangout is June 24th at 8pm central. Thank you so much this week to Karen, who pledged to support coming back on Patreon. I look forward to seeing you behind the scenes. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, intuitive grief guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. One-on-one grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say, what do you have to teach me? If you're ready to start sharing your story, or you're looking for tools, exercises, and a map forward in the aftermath of loss, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief-coaching to fill out an interest form. Grief is a personal experience, but we don't have to go it alone. My heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching.